has anyone ever been really lost? I mean, lost to the point of panic. Okay, I have it on good authority. Some of you have. Right? Uh, years ago, I think this was back in 2006, before the days of cell phones or smartphones and GPS, I was in Dublin. And it was the second time I was in Dublin. Uh, however, uh, since the first time I had been there, the entire layout of Dublin changed because they installed, they installed a light rail. And so they were experimenting with the traffic flow, and they, all these streets have been modified to one ways. And so the problem was when you bought your map of Dublin, it was useless because what was indicated as being a two-way street or a one-way street inevitably was different when you actually got to that street. And so as you sat down the night before and I plotted my way from the hotel to the Intel facility I had to go to, the challenge was I had to get on the N1. And once I got to the N1, it was all straight and clear. The problem is it should have taken me about 10 to 15 minutes to get to the N1. I left my hotel, I kid you not, at 7 a.m. And I got in the N1 about 11 o'clock in the morning. I was so panicked, I thought this was the end. Between driving on the left, between getting to a turn where I expected to be able to turn left and discover that it's one way the other way, and of course, what do I have to do? Turn, figure out where to pull over, and recompute with my near-useless map. Between all of that and the absolutely poor signage, I, I I was as hurting as you can be. And after about an hour or two of that, I started to get a little panicky. I thought, this is it. This is how it's all going to end. I'm just going to die someplace. They're never going to find me. Karen's going to call and say, you know, he's driving this and that. He's about this tall. And they're never going to find me. I'm going to die or I'm going to at least be fired because I'll never show up for work. Well, all that aside, it's a little bit like our, our text this morning because we're back in 1 Corinthians, but it's been a while since we've been in the text. Uh, and we've had a number of weeks where we've, uh, where we've jumped out of the text into something else. And so as a result, it might be hard to stay calibrated to the larger arc of Paul's reasoning throughout this section of the letter. And and when we dive into our text today, it'd be really easy to get lost and to sort of miss the larger context and how the larger context needs to inform our local context. And so what I'd like to do is just spend a little bit of time uh, before I do it, before I read our text today uh, and, and capture the big idea of, of Paul's text, um, our larger context, and just sort of work through that for a couple of seconds and reorient us all to the larger flow of thought that we're working through, the larger flow of thought where our specific text snaps into. Okay? So the larger context today is really the first verse in chapter 8 through the first verse in chapter 11. Okay, so 8.1 through 11.1 is really the entire arc of Paul's argument where we're in, right? And the big idea that defines Paul's train of thought in this section of the letter is this. Brotherly love prompts us to gladly surrender our rights and advantages for the sake of another's salvation and sanctification. That's it. That's the takeaway. That's the big idea. Brotherly love prompts us to gladly surrender our rights and advantages for the sake of others salvation and sanctification well in chapter 8 1 through 13 in fact these there's really three main points technically four but three really big points and they coincidentally snap to each chapter 
Okay, the chapter divisions don't always work so cleanly, but they happen to in this case. And so really, chapter 8, in chapter 8, Paul describes the specific problem and the required response. And so it seems, you may recall, that there was disagreement among the church at Corinth as to whether or not it was acceptable to eat food offered to idols. And so while Paul explained that consuming food, this kind of food, doesn't condemn a believer in and of itself, Paul presents the prevailing problem in 8.7, where he explains that some believers still honored idols by consuming food sacrificed to them to the defilement of their weak consciences. And so Paul warned his readers in 8.9, he said, take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And Paul's response is summarized at the end of the chapter in verse 13, where he says, If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And in fact, the rest of Paul's argument in chapters 9 and 10 is really a response to this statement. And then the second big idea uh, in chapter 9 is that Paul presents a personal testimony of his own self-denial on behalf of brotherly love. That's chapter 9, 1 through 27. And Paul's argument flows through the following three subpoints. I apologize. I don't know how easy that is to read. I thought the font was huge when I prepared the slides, but they're not so huge when I look at it now. So Paul's flow of thought travels through three big ideas. And it's really the second two that is the basis of today's text. So in his first point, Paul defends his right to gain his material provision from spiritual investment. That's 9, 1 through 14. And that's the message that Josh preached so well the week before Easter. And these next two points, B and C, are are, um, our text today. Paul is going to explain that because he's not indebted to nor dependent upon the Corinthians for the sake of his material well-being, he is free to enslave himself to their spiritual well-being with the greatest degree of agility and effectiveness. That's 9, 15 through 23. And then the third point is that as both a call to action and a transition, Paul exhorts the Corinthians to purposefulness, discipline, and self-control, 9, 24 through 27. And then in chapter 10, Paul instructs the weak and the knowledgeable. So it's not until the second half of 10 that Paul actually directly responds to the very question he was asked that prompted this entire discourse to begin with. But before he does that, in the first 13 uh, verses of the chapter, Paul warns the Corinthians. He warns them about how easily sin can take up residency in our hearts, explaining that knowledge in and of itself does not lead to righteousness. That's verses 1 through 13. And then, in 14 through 22, Paul speaks directly to the circumstances of who he referred to as the weaker brother in chapter 8, the one who was still honoring idols and still uh, weakening or defiling their conscience by virtue of eating meat offered to idols. So he speaks directly to that individual in 14 through 22. And then immediately afterwards, in verses 23 through 30, Paul speaks to the brother with knowledge, okay, the one he also referred to in chapter 8. And then finally, in verses 31 and the first verse of chapter 11, Paul closes with a final set of exhortations 
uh, and, and imitations and, and, and a call to imitate him. And so that's really the overall arc of flow through chapters 8, 9, and 10. And I think it's important for us to see that roadmap or else we're going to dive down into the details and maybe make some conclusions that may or may not be accurate based upon the larger, the larger flow of thought. So with that clarification, uh, and as I mentioned, this is where we'll be camping today, these, these second two points in that, that middle point. And in the coming weeks, Joseph will be preaching a series of lessons through the rest of the text. Okay. So join me now as, I, as we read the text. And you'll see why in a few seconds. I'm going to actually read verses 4, 5, and 6 before I jump down to verse 15. And you'll understand the reason for that shortly. So starting in chapter 9, verse 4. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Jumping down to 15. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race, All the runners compete, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest, after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So what I want to do is I really want to spend some time working through the text, understanding what Paul is saying. Suffice it to say, we've got a lengthy portion of text and it's a little bit complex and it's it's a little easy to get lost in Paul's reasoning. So we want to untangle all of that and make sure that we understand what Paul is, is, is saying. And then once we do that, that'll probably be the majority of our time. We'll spend a little bit of time uh, pulling the camera back, if you will, making some generalizations and drawing some applications out. Okay? So as I said, it is a little, uh, it's a little on the complicated side, a little bit on the complex side. 
So if you've got your caffeine, now's a good time to take a sip. As they used to say in the World War II movies I watched as a kid, smoke them if you've got them, boys. All right, so we're going we're gonna to jump right into things. Okay, in 15a, Paul reiterates the decisiveness with which he has surrendered his rights. The first time we read verse 15, we might be inclined to think that Paul is responding to the immediately preceding statement in verse 14, Paul's specific right to earn a living by the gospel. But notice what Paul says. He says, I have made no use of any of these rights, plural. He's referring to something more than just one single right. So let's recover Paul's train of thought in this part of the argument. At the beginning of the chapter, this is why I read this, Paul lays out three rights he's entitled to as a faithful steward of the gospel. The right to eat and drink, that was verse 4. The right to be accompanied by a believing wife, that was verse 6. I'm sorry, verse 5. And the right to earn a living through gospel ministry, that was verse 6. Paul then chooses one of these three rights. In this case, the right to earn his living by the gospel and reasons through a detailed defense of that right. That's the focus of verses 7 through 14. Now look down at verse 12, particularly the second half of verse 12, and you'll see that Paul refutes his claim on this specific right, the right to earn a living, and closes his argument on this point with an appeal to two proof points. He cites the example of the Levites in verse 13, and the teaching of Jesus in verse 14. So while Paul's rejection at the beginning of verse 15 certainly echoes the rejection of his entitlement in the second half of verse 12, his statement in verse 15 moves from the specific to the general, referring back to all three entitlements mentioned at the top of the letter. Now in Verses in the second half of 15 through verse 17, Paul explains that he labors in his ministry with a level of initiative and passion that exceeds mere duty. And for this, he is rewarded. Now, verses 15b through 17 are fairly busy. And if we read it too quickly, they can be a bit of a blur. Paul talks about boasting, then a reward, and then somehow he ends up back on the specific topic of waiving his right to earn a living through the gospel. So let's look at this a little bit more closely. After just telling us that he has rejected all three of the entitlements he listed at the start of his argument, Paul explains why. He said, For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. And as you'll see, this is, this is a key statement. Not only should we as careful readers, ask ourselves, what does Paul mean by his ground for boasting? But as careful observers of the text, we should recognize that everything Paul says from the next verse, verse 16, through the end of the chapter, verse 27, is a detailed explanation of this sentiment. Paul begins his explanation in verses 16 and 17 by contrasting three different ways that he can potentially respond to his call to preach the gospel. Now, here's where a diagram of the text helps us see the details of Paul's reasoning. I hope you can see that 
sufficiently. My apologies. Through his, four, Paul, through his use of four if statements, Paul iterates through three distinct ideas. It's only three because the first and the fourth statement make the same point. Paul reasons through a lesser idea, then an unthinkable idea, then a greater idea, and then he readdresses the lesser idea. The end caps of Paul's reasoning address the apostles' necessity to preach. That is, preaching solely in response to his obligation to do so. This is the lesser idea. So whatever Paul means by boasting, he explains to us that it's not accessible to Paul if all he does is fulfill his duty. That's also the emphasis of Paul's last statement. A steward isn't exalted for simply fulfilling what's demanded of them. Now, between these two end caps, Paul raises briefly the unthinkable idea that he not preach at all, and then Paul raises the greater idea that he preaches of his own will. That is, he preaches with a level of initiative and passion that exceeds mere duty. Now notice, look down at your text. Notice that in verse 17, Paul shifts his word choice from boasting to reward. And it is only in response to a type of preaching that exceeds mere duty that Paul enjoys a reward. Now I don't want to get too tedious, but I think it best to think of these two terms as synonymous. And here's why. Again, look at the text. Paul is contrasting a greater idea with a lesser idea. Paul explains that if he succumbs to the lesser idea, boasting is what he loses. But if he fulfills the greater idea, a reward is what he gains. So the boasting and the reward are essentially the same thing. In fact, as we'll see in a few minutes in our current chapter, Paul uses five different terms to refer to God's present and future response to Paul's faithfulness and the faithfulness of the saints. So Paul's point is quite simple. Paul labors in his ministry with a level of passion and initiative that exceeds mere duty, and for this he is rewarded. So of course, the obvious question to ask is, well, what is this reward? And this is exactly what Paul anticipates and answers in the next verse. In verse 18, Paul explains that his reward is the opportunity to minister among the Corinthians independent of their material support. Paul explains that his reward is the ability to present the gospel free of charge. That is, God has provided for Paul in such a way that he can waive his right to earn a living through his preaching. Now, at first glance, this doesn't sound like a satisfying explanation. I mean, after all, it sounds like Paul has simply restated what he said in verse 15, the very statement he's explaining to us. So it's hard initially to get past what sounds like a bit of circular reasoning. But I want you to notice the very next sentence in verse 19, and that it begins with the conjunction for. This is important because it tells us that despite the paragraph break inserted by the editors, Paul's explanation isn't done. Paul's not done explaining to himself. There's still more to Paul's explanation of his boast. And yet, 
if we actually look a little bit more carefully, Paul has, in fact, provided a meaningful chunk of explanation, even at this early stage in his argument. Let's return for a moment. I'll show you. Let's return for a moment to Paul's reasoning in verses 11 and 12. I'm going to read this. Beginning in verse 11, he writes, If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Paul's desire to abstain from his right to glean material provision from the Corinthians is motivated by his desire to avoid something negative. That's what we just read. Putting any type of obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And since verses 11 and 12 hearken back to 8.13, the obstacle that Paul is talking about is something that would make another brother or sister stumble. Okay, so verses 11 and 12, he's talking about avoiding something negative. But look at verse 18. His motivation is different. Rather than the avoidance of something negative, Paul describes his capacity to deny himself the right to material provision as something positive, something he describes as a reward. So even though Paul's argument is still in flight, he wants us to know that his choice to sustain himself independent of the Corinthians' material support, it's not a burden he bears, but a privilege he's won because of the wholeheartedness with which he pursues gospel ministry. Now in 19 through 23, Paul goes on to explain that he frequently and purposefully adapts his preferences and lifestyle to win others to the gospel in anticipation of sharing with them in its blessing. And once again, a diagram of the text is helpful to follow Paul's train of thought. Notice that the primary thought in Paul's reasoning is expressed through two short explanatory statements that bookend a series of four illustrations. Okay, this is called a literary inclusio. Notice that not only do these pair of statements express the same thought, but the literary structure of these statements parallel each other. Paul basically says, this is what I'm doing, and this is why I do it. In verse 19, he says, I have made myself a servant of all. Why, Paul? That I might win more of them. And in verse 22, I have become all things to all people. Why? That I, by all means, I might save some. So those are his two explanations, his two motivations. And sandwiched between these two bookends, sandwiched between these two statements, Paul provides, Paul provides four examples or proof points that illustrate Paul's claims. And there's a few observations we need to make about these. Okay? First, Paul describes four different sets of peoples, of people. He describes the Jews. He also mentions those under the law. Okay, now that's a reference to Greek proselytes. In other words, those who are non-ethnic Jews but have converted to Judaism. 
Okay, so typically Greeks who converted to Judaism who are referred to as proselytes or those under the law, but not ethnic Jews. And then he refers to those outside of the law, obviously Greeks and other Gentiles. And then finally he refers to the weak. Okay, so Paul describes four different sets of people. Second thing I'd like you to notice is that the first three sets of people are different than the fourth. The first three describe Paul's outreach to the unsaved. Paul's referring to the saving power of the gospel. Now, remembering the larger context of our passage, Paul's reference to the weak, that fourth group, is clearly a reference to the weak brother whose situation, described in chapter 8, is the occasion that prompted Paul's argument, Paul's entire argument to begin with. It's why we're here. And it's the weak brother that Paul will address directly in the following chapter, in chapter 10, verses 14 to 22. In fact, Paul's statement, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak, is nothing less than the principle guiding Paul's declaration in 8.13. If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make, lest I make my brother stumble. The point I want you to see is that everything Paul's saying from 9.1 through 10.22, it is not a rabbit trail. If all we do is look at some of the detail in his argument, we might think it's so. But I want you to see that it is absolutely tethered to the larger arc of his reasoning through this whole flow of thought. Though Paul has involved us in a rather tedious argument, the argument is not disconnected from his declaration in 8.13. It actually proceeds from it. So we are in the midst of Paul's explanation. Paul has not distracted himself and is just iterating through something that might be theologically true but otherwise unrelated to where he's been. This very much follows uh, his statement in 8.13. I also want you to notice that unlike the first three illustrations, by referring to the weak brother, and that's exactly how Paul refers to that individual in chapter 8 as a brother, Paul is referring to the sanctifying power of the gospel in his gospel ministry. In fact, I think Paul is intentional about blurring the distinction between his love for and ministry to the unsaved and his love for and ministry to the saved. For the purpose of this argument, Paul is mixing these two groups together. So that was the second thing I want you to notice. The first three groups are very distinct from that fourth group. The third thing I want us to look at are uh, these parenthetical statements that clarify that Paul was not a pragmatist. What's a pragmatist? Well, a pragmatist is just a big fancy word for someone who judges the value of something, not on principle, but solely on the basis of whether it achieves the desired results. Now, in two of Paul's four illustrations, Paul explains the boundaries of his actions in a, in a, in a parenthetical clarification that Paul nests between the action itself and the justification of that action. Paul says, I became as one under the law. Parenthetical clarification. Though not being myself under the law. And then he says, I became as one outside the law. Clarification. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. 
Now we're going to say more about the significance and implications of this portion of Paul's argument shortly. But at the moment, I want you to recognize the importance of these disclaimers. The overall thrust of Paul's argument is the agility with which he adjusts his lifestyle and cultural preferences in order to maximize the effectiveness of his gospel ministry. Paul wasn't a man set in his ways. He wasn't someone who limited his ministry to those who fit within the narrow confines of his cultural preferences. Paul was long-suffering and he was adaptable. But he wasn't a pragmatist. For Paul, it wasn't anything goes. He didn't judge the merits of his methods solely on the basis of whether they appeared to work. The means were not justified by the ends. While Paul was quick to move across cultural boundaries for the sake of the gospel, there was an even larger framework, something beyond mere culture, that guided and bounded Paul's practices. And obviously, that was Paul's imitation of and faithfulness to Jesus Christ. This is why these parenthetical statements are critical. If these disclaimers weren't there, we could conclude that Paul was a pragmatist and that the effectiveness of a method justified its employment. But because they are there, we know he's not, and we can't. And this brings us to verse 23, where Paul declares his primary motivation. He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Now look at that again. Look down at the text. Do you see how Paul identifies with those he serves, how he identifies with those he serves in his description of the future benefit of gospel faithfulness? That I may share with them in its blessings. You see, once again, Paul wasn't pursuing some sort of ecclesiastical self-advancement. He recognized the profound unity that characterizes both the present and future state of God's covenant people, and this propelled Paul's initiative. Now remember, Paul is still explaining to us what his boast or reward is. And I think in saying what he just said, Paul is expanding upon the sense of his boast and reward to something beyond the mere opportunity to preach without cost. And this is especially apparent in the closing verses of the chapter, as Paul's emphasis shifts to the future aspect of their shared reward. But before looking at 24 through 27, I want to quickly return your attention to the beginning of verse 19, and I want you to see how Paul introduces his, his inclusio. Look again at the text in verse 19. How does he begin? He says, For though I am free from all. The word translated free in verse 19, is the Greek word eleutheros. eleutheros. Uh, it's, it's strong 1658, in case you're interested. It's the same word Paul uses in 9.1 when he says, am I not free? And he uses it multiple times in chapter 7 when we were talking about marriage. But it's different than the word translated by the phrase free of charge that he said immediately prior to that in verse 18. In verse 18, Paul's word choice strictly refers to financial expense. But in verse 19, Paul's, word, Paul's choice of eleutheros 
has a wider range of potential meanings. And I think Paul is being a bit clever here. I think Paul is bringing to bear two related but distinct meanings in order to transition his point and illuminate what he means. Now, one meaning of the word, eleutheros, is this. It means one who is not or ceases to be a slave. Now, this meaning is obviously in play because Paul is using the word in contrast to his present condition or to contrast his present condition to that of a servant. He says, though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. So that's one sense of the word, and he definitely carries that payload. But another meaning of this word is this. It means exempt, unrestrained, not bound by any obligation or otherwise. Now it's this meaning of the word eleutheros that Paul uses to springboard from the reward and privilege he discussed in verses 15 through 18 to the purposefulness and priority he describes in verses 19 through 23. This is what I mean. Paul's larger argument in verses 15 through 23 is that by God's grace, he is not indebted to or dependent upon the Corinthians for the sake of his material well-being. And because this is so, he is free to enslave himself to their spiritual well-being with the greatest degree of agility and effectiveness. In other words, Paul is free to invest himself in the lives of others in such a way that were he actually dependent upon them for his material support, his motives might be questioned. But Paul's choice to waive this right takes that potential misunderstanding right off the table. If you want it even even more simple terms, what Paul is saying is because he is not indebted to the Corinthians for his material well-being, he can focus on their spiritual well-being. He can demonstrate, he can live out brotherly love for the sake of, of the spiritual well-being of those around him, and he could do that whatever the cost. Whatever the cost. He has the greatest flexibility and adaptability to do that. So that brings us that brings us to verses 24 through 27. And in these verses, these verses are both a call to action and a transition. Paul exhorts the Corinthians to purposefulness, discipline, and self-control. Paul's language in this section of the text is peppered with a multitude of athletic analogies. We have running, races, boxing, prizes, and wreaths, just to name a few. Now, there's no doubt that the people of Corinth would have connected with Paul's reasoning. And you may recall the clarification provided at the beginning of our series on 1 Corinthians. Corinth was host to something called the Isthmian Games. These were a major athletic competition held every two years in honor of the god Poseidon. And these pan-Hellenistic games were second in popularity only to the ancient Olympics. So Paul was talking their language. And Paul uses a series of athletic metaphors to exhort the Corinthians to purposefulness, discipline, and self-control in light of the future reward for faithfulness. Now, what I want you to notice in this section of the text is the progression of pronouns. Look down at your text, please. Notice in verse 24, 
Paul employs the pronoun you. It's there explicitly at the beginning of his question, and it's there again in the imperative run, whose subject is understood to be you. And then look at 25. Notice Paul's use of the pronoun we in the second sentence of the verse, his sentence of explanation. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. And then keep going to verse 26, and you'll see that Paul confesses something about himself, and his language shifts to the pronoun I. Now backing up to verse 24, Paul appeals to the analogy of a track race to exhort the Corinthians to spiritual purposefulness and endurance. Run that you may obtain the prize, Paul says. In Paul's mind, it's the obvious response demanded by his argument started in verse verse 1 of chapter 9. But then in verse 25, Paul identifies with the Corinthians as evidenced by his shift in language from you to we. Paul uses the picture of an athlete's discipline and self-control motivated by their eye on the prize, the affirmation of victory, a wreath, the gold medal of Paul's day, if you will. It's another exhortation, an exhortation to spiritual discipline and self-control motivated by the promise of spiritual reward, a lasting and imperishable reward. But it's a little more intimate than the first exhortation. The first exhortation was that from teacher to pupil. But Paul's inclusive language is more of a we're all in this together kind of tone. And that sets Paul up for his sentiment in verses 26 and 27. Paul's softest exhortation, exhorting the Corinthians yet again to spiritual purposefulness and self-control by revealing his commitment to these things in his own life, motivated by the, by the apostle's awareness of his own susceptibility to sin. You see, Paul's confession of his own susceptibility to sin is a significant thing. To make the most of this and see this, we'd have to continue reading the text, which we're not going to do. You see, in addition to being a collection of exhortations that follow logically from his argument thus far, this paragraph is also a transition. Because at the start of chapter 10, as I mentioned earlier, before Paul addresses directly the weak brother and then the knowledgeable brother, Paul warns the Corinthians how easily sin can take up residency in our hearts, citing ancient Israel as a proof point. And so Paul's movement to identify with the Corinthians in verse 25 and then confess his own personal susceptibility to sin in verses 26 through 27 is a way of helping his readers receive his instruction in the second half of chapter 10 with as much humility and meekness as possible. So that's the text. That's kind of long, isn't it? So I think, we, I think we need to pull the bus over for, for a cerebral rest. That was... Kind of complicated, wasn't it? That's a little bit like taking apart a watch and figuring out how it worked, huh? So let's do this now, moving forward. What I like to do is now that I think we've, we've worked through the text and we have a reasonable grasp of sort of Paul's intent, his authorial intent, and what's inside his mind and what he's reasoning, I'd like to stand, stand here now and kind of pull the camera back a little bit and look at everything as a whole, make a couple of generalizations, and from that a couple of applications about what this means to us. So four points, really. 
And the first point is this. Paul expects us to imitate his example, which was ultimately the example of Christ. Paul explicitly says this at the conclusion of his argument in 11.1. He says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So, Paul's convictions and actions, they're not some sort of higher standard that accompanied Paul's responsibility as an apostle. Paul's example is prescriptive for you and me. It's the priority, the passion, and the faithfulness that should characterize every follower of Jesus Christ. This isn't the only place where Paul presents his life as a model for you and me to follow. Paul made the same appeal earlier in this same letter. In the fourth chapter, verses 15 and 16, he said, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. And then consider also Philippians 3.17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Or consider Paul's praise for the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 5 and 6, he says, You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So the point we need to recognize right from the start is that the priorities and actions of the apostle in our current passage isn't some extreme form of piety reserved for the super spiritual as if there was such a thing. Paul's example is an example for the common, everyday follower of Jesus Christ. It's an example for you and me. That was the first point. Second thing I'd like us to see. God's promised reward drove the priority of everything Paul did. God's promised reward drove the priority of everything Paul did. In our passage, Paul refers to his eternal reward in five different ways. I alluded earlier that there are actually five synonyms all referring to this. He refers to his boast, a reward, blessings in verse 23, prize in verse 24, and imperishable wreath in verse 25. I think that all these are really referring to the same thing. When we first hear this, that is, that God's promised reward drove the apostles' priority in everything we did, we can't help, at least initially, Think in human terms and think for a moment that Paul's underlying motivation was self-serving. But this isn't the case. Rather, Paul took the heart, the promises of God. Listen to the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe what? That he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And since God is good and all of his promises are good, it is good to trust God and to live for his promises. Consider what the writer of Hebrews said of Moses a few verses later in 1126. He writes, he considered, referring to Moses, the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Why? For he was looking to the reward. Again, And again, our Lord taught to live in pursuit of heavenly reward, not earthly privilege. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, Jesus refers to heavenly reward nothing less than nine times. 
The Lord speaks of reward and loss in the parable of the talents, Matthew 25, as well as the parable of the ten minas, Luke 19. But in spite of all this, it's likely that the immediate thing on Paul's mind was the future judgment that he warned the Corinthians about earlier in the letter. Now, for us, this was a few months ago. But for the original audience reading this letter, this would have been moments earlier, so this would be fresh in their mind. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, remember, this is what Paul said. He said, Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Again, Paul's preoccupation with heavenly reward wasn't something that he considered to be unique to his role as an apostle, but something expected of every follower of Jesus. Listen to Paul speak elsewhere in Scripture about his eternal reward or his eternal prize at the forefront of his thinking and his call for all to imitate this preoccupation of his. In Philippians 3, 13 through 15, he writes, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal, for here it is, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then here's his statement of inclusion. Let those of us who are mature think this way. See, it wasn't just for Paul. And then Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, 7 and 8. He writes, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, or if you prefer, an imperishable wreath, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And then here's his statement of inclusion. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You see, Paul was not self-serving. He was simply convinced that God's promises are far greater than any temporary satisfaction that this life could offer. And here's the game changer. He believed this enough to organize his life around God's promises. Paul was motivated by and kept his perspective fixed upon his eternal reward, and that's exactly what needs to consume our desire. God's promised reward drove the priority of everything Paul did. Our third point. Paul's pursuit of eternal reward invigorated the foremost priority of his life, the salvation of the elect and the sanctification of the saved. It's hard to overstate how much the salvation of the elect and the sanctification of the saints consumed Paul's concern and desire. There's a certain earnestness with which Paul spent his life on behalf of the gospel's advance. A certain intensity, a certain fervor, a certain devotion. Listen again to the declarations Paul makes in this section of the letter. Listen to these. If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. We endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. 
I do not seek my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Paul's zeal for the salvation and sanctification of God's people is nothing less than Paul living out his obedience to our Lord's call in Matthew 21, where our Lord taught in 26 and 28 through 28, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So because Paul was motivated by and kept his perspective fixed upon his eternal reward, last point, his foremost priority was the salvation of the elect and the sanctification of the saved. But here's the question. How exactly did Paul live out this priority? And this brings us to our fourth and last generalization. Paul stewarded his life and lifestyle as a, what I'll call, tool, frequently and strategically adjusted to best serve the spiritual welfare of others. I know that sounds a bit awkward. You may not have heard that kind of terminology before. Let me say this again. Paul stewarded his life and lifestyle as a tool, frequently and strategically adjusted to best serve the spiritual welfare of others. In other words, Paul did not live for his own earthly interests, but saw his life as an asset to be strategically deployed for the salvation and sanctification of as many as possible. What Paul has bequeathed, what Paul's example has, I'm sorry, what Paul has bequeathed us in an example par excellence of true brotherly love, a love that bears whatever personal cost is necessary for the sake of another's spiritual well-being. That's what Paul did. That's the example he gave us. All of this is ultimately a picture of true brotherly love. And I think what the text of Scripture is fundamentally confronting us with today is whether or not our lives are truly abandoned to the salvation and sanctification of God's people, here it is, as a matter of first priority, or whether our confessional commitment to these things works itself out in our lives as a matter of secondary importance. Here's the question. Are we fervently striving after God's promised reward? Do we really see our lives and the details of our lifestyle as nothing more than gospel-serving tools to be frequently and purposely adjusted to maximize our usefulness to the king? Now, if not, we have to ask ourselves why. And one reason could be that we've never fully been pressed by the full weight of God's holiness and righteousness recognizing ourselves as a rebellious sinner in love with ourselves, not God. Possible that whatever faith we might have, perhaps it falls short of the kind of faith that repents of our sin and desperately runs to Jesus Christ as our only hope, knowing that he stood before the terror of the Father's judgment on our behalf, bearing what we deserved in order to satisfy our infinite debt to God's justice. You see, if this is the case, if we fall short this way, we're we're impotent to abandon our worldly lives the way Paul did, 
because it takes the work of God's spirit within us to do such a thing. But on the other hand, if we truly desire to spend our lives as gospel-serving tools, frequently and purposefully adjusted to maximize our usefulness to the king, well, the next question we need to ask ourselves is how we can more faithfully abandon our own self-interests and apply our lives to the cause of seeing the gospel flourish in the lives of those around us. And, most importantly, to commit ourselves to that as a matter of first priority, not merely confessional priority. And so there's a multitude of questions we can ask ourselves. How can we be more purposeful in our homes? Fathers, how can you be more purposeful in how you relate to your wife in order to exalt the supremacy of Christ in front of your kids? Wives, how can you do the same? Husband and wife, how can you be more strategic in the order and cadence of your family life in order to amplify Christ's worth and the wonder of the gospel in your home? How can we be more faithful in the way we consume our discretionary time and money so that to anyone watching, it is obvious that we are striving after eternal reward? How can we be more purposeful for the gospel's sake in our own neighborhoods? How can we be more strategic in how we steward our relationships in the workplace? Now, these questions should drive us to earnest prayer because I think there are at least two, there are probably many things working against us, but there are at least two big impediments working against us. And the first one is this. The first one is selfishness. And this is what I mean. The Christian life is not first defined by what we do in the sense of mechanical duty and a checklist of weekly activities. But rather, the Christian life is first defined by what we want. You see, it would be really easy to turn this part of the sermon into a call for some sort of radical action that we need to all go off and do in order to feel pious about ourselves. But I don't think there's a specific one-size-fits-all action that the text compels us to. Besides that, the root of the problem isn't so much that we're not doing what Paul did, but that we don't want what Paul wanted. If we want the things Paul wanted, our Christ-imitating actions would follow. But this, this is where the daily battle is, isn't it? Wanting what God wants. And this is often coupled with and entangled with our second impediment. And the second impediment is disbelief. You see, we often live with a practical disbelief in the worth of God's promised reward. We don't believe in the abundance and the desirability of the reward God promised to those who strive to be ever more consumed with what God wants, the salvation and sanctification of a new humanity, while putting to death the hopes, the dreams, expectations, privileges, and other advantages that cause us to love this world and the world's esteem. And so this is where Paul's personal testimony takes us. At the end of the day, it all boils down to this. Authentic, brotherly love for one another. A love that gladly gives up our rights 
and advantages for the sake of another salvation and sanctification, this kind of living, it only blossoms in our lives to the degree that we believe in the abundance and worth of God's promised reward. So much so that we put to death and keep on putting to death our self-love and we want what God wants. And this happens, true brotherly love and subsequent Christ-imitating actions joyfully follow. Father, this was a complicated passage. There was much there. And I, I pray, Lord, that you would have us retain what you want us to hear. Lord, we desperately need to want what you want. I am persuaded on the basis of what you have revealed that that's where it all starts. This is not about going out and, and disciplining ourselves with some new practice and lifestyle. Maybe that's what will eventually happen, but it starts first with changing our hearts, changing the way we think, changing the way we feel about the world we live in, and truly wanting what you wanted. Because by example, that's what Paul did, Lord. He was so convinced of the worth and the desirability of the reward you promised, that he lived in belief of who you were and what you've done and what you've promised. Because he believed that, Lord, he wanted what you wanted. And from that, all else flowed. So Lord, we need that kind of heart. But we can't, we can't just manufacture this, Lord. We, we can't even fake it. We, we're in desperate need for you to break into our lives, break into our hearts, dust off our sleepy souls, and give us a true taste of your worth. Renew in our hearts a true vision of the goodness of what you've promised, not, not out of selfish self-interest, but because it is good to trust you. It is good to anticipate all that you have promised. And from that, Lord, change our souls to want the very things you want and to discover that our lives are increasingly becoming tools tools for you to adjust, adjust frequently and often for the sake of the salvation and sanctification of your new humanity. Lord, it's in your precious name that we pray. Amen.